Hello and welcome back to Mav Geeks, a military aircraft obsession with myself, Alex Gill, and Ginny Carlin as we take a look at some of the most iconic out-of-service aircraft in military aviation history. Today, it's Cold War aircraft as we hear from someone who operated one of the, in my opinion, funniest looking fast jets in RAF history. Buckle up, this is Mav Geeks. really that we should talk about air shows because we've got to the end of the air show season obviously this year the first time in a couple of years that anybody's really been doing air shows and all the vintage ex-military aircraft that are being shown there few people that i just want to give a big shout out to first of all uh the b-17 sally b crew uh, who take this amazing aircraft it was used in the memphis belt i think probably one of the only airworthy b-17s certainly in europe uh, but in the world she's based at duxford to go around to all the air shows it kind of overwhelms you when you hear the four right cyclone engines going it, it's it's amazing and they are there with loads of volunteers come hello high water uh-huh. every single air show i mean they're like us they're complete nerds you know what i mean of course um uh, of course uh, also the just jane air show team just jane is a lancaster bomber uh, that they've got at east kirkby airfield which is now the ex raf east kirkby which is now a, a, a museum um just jane is in beautiful condition she's not airworthy though she just taxes oh it's such a shame isn't it when aircraft are not airworthy and can't get in the air so they can can just poodle around i know some people who do that who uh, used to do that with an old uh, vc10 that was no longer airworthy but they would just poodle it around uh, where people could go and watch and, and see it and, and raise a bit of money to, to keep the restoration going but what i always wondered is when you when you're at the the one end of the runway and you know the taxiing gets done by pilots right you know they know how to fly the aircraft so how tempting must it be to just push it go past v1 and surely every time they taxi it they just want to kind of raz it and 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 get it in the air it must be so tempting and like horrible that they can't oh my gosh al it's so funny you saying that because i saw a few years ago so lusty lindy is a a handy page victor so a bit like the vulcan so Mm -hmm. yeah yeah. just after the vulcan uh, they got one at Elvington Airfield Museum. Keeper there, the ta- they were taxiing her, and Lindy just wanted to fly. So you see, you see her go down taxiing. She, she honestly, she went off the into the air about ten, fifteen feet. No, oh, wow. Honestly, have a have a look on YouTube, Al. Everybody in the crowd's like, whoa. Yeah. The pilot's like, whoa, but probably secretly enjoying it. I know. As well. I mean, you shouldn't and- laugh because it's it's a quite a, a quite serious thing, and obviously, <laughs> an aircraft that shouldn't be in the air should not be in the air. But it, they want it right, and it must be so hard for the people operating it to not just go and take off and have a flight. But they well, can't. Not allowed. They- well, Lindy just wanted to go, bless her. So I managed to wrestle Lindy uh, back down onto the runway. Everybody wow. was like, you know, almost apoplectic yeah. uh, by the end of it. But I have a little look on YouTube. I will. Uh, Elvin, I think it's something like Elvington Airfield, Lusty Lindy, Taxi. <laughs> what a great name. See it. I know, I know, brilliant. But she, but of course, I mean, the Handley Page Victor, I'm, I'm going off on one now. What a beautiful, almost like a buxom plane, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just just a beautiful plane. It just The name fits us so, so well but anyway uh, but just going back to the air shows and stuff um we're going to be talking about a cold war jet i've got a lovely interview coming up uh, but when i was at duxford this year i saw the strike master duo now i have to be honest with you i'd i'd seen the strike master never really sort of took much notice what a beautiful 
plane took over from the Jet Provost. Yes, and uh, I love the Jet Provost. Oh my gosh, like like a bigger version, really. Uh, and this guy who's ex uh, ex military, ex fighter pilot, got these two strike masters, just threw them around the sky. It was wow. it was beautiful, Al. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. So I first saw the Jet Provost at the Royal International Air Tattoo. They just had one on static display. Someone who owned one, I think they were flying out of Benson, and uh, you know, privately owned, and they they were taking people up for experience flights, chucking it about. Really cool. Um, but uh, I mean, talking about air shows. What is your favourite air show? Because I know you've been to loads, actually, and you were mentioning a few earlier. Um, I've been to Bournemouth, Riyadh, and Cosford, and that's it. And I feel like my air show repertoire could do with a few more under its belt, actually. And I think you've probably been to quite a few more than me. What's your favourite? Uh, I think I, I really like the big air shows. Love Duxford, obviously. I mean, it's, it's just iconic. Uh, absolutely love Farnborough as well. Can you remember the old oh, Farnborough yes. air show? I'd love to have done uh, so that. So y- y- years and years ago, I mean, we're talking the 90s, I got a ticket to go, uh, drove down there, and the one enjoyable memory for me is how much my feet hurt, yes, but also <laughs> um, was the Harrier. So everybody, I mean, this is before the days of really keeping the crowds away. You know what I mean? Uh, the crowds were all lined up against the barrier. The Harrier flew in, like stopped and like went, oi, oi, turned round, <laughs> faced everybody and did like that kind of from side to side, really menacing. Mm. You know, you know how the Harrier could, it got like ultimate control. Yeah. I mean, probably using like, you know, as much petrol as you could ever get in a petrol station or just that one manoeuvre. And I just thought, how menacing does that look? It came right down, like looked us all in the eye, went one side to the other and then went and got out of there. Um, And that was my enjoying memory. I would also say, Al, the small air shows for me really make it. So you've got stuff like the Strike Master. You've got the uh, Tiger 9 display team who are, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, the, the Tiger Moth, all piloted by, and I'm sure they won't mind me saying it, some of the guys are as old as the planes. Fly. <laughs> I, I mean that. I, I don't mean any disrespect by that. That's true. Speaking to a guy uh, who was a, a former Concorde captain, um, and he was 80 years old. He just turned 80, and his plane was, I think, a year younger than he was. Wow. And still throwing it around, going information. The small air shows are where it's at for me and there's a real good vibe everybody's vibing off these planes i love it so i I feel like that's what i'm missing it's the smaller air shows i've been to a few of the big ones you know cosford's massive the royal international air tattoo is the world's biggest military air show and i love them for their size and their grandeur uh, especially riyat you know it's it's down the road from where i live at aria fairford it is and it's been it's been uh, just catastrophic, frankly, for the local area that it hasn't happened for the last few years because uh, everyone in West Oxfordshire and on the Gloucestershire border, just Riyadh is just such a big part of the culture. Even if you don't go every year, you you know it's happening because there's jets coming in from all over the all over the world. Uh, you know, during arrivals week, which is very very exciting, and I love it. Um, and then they all leave on the same day, which is also quite fun. And you know, like my my girlfriend used to work at a uh, the Fairford Football Club, so they would always get like people who were part of the club down to watch the air show on the football pitch because it was literally you know right next to to to, to RAF Fairford so you could watch it really cool and I've really missed it and I really hope Riyadh's back next year I mean I, hopefully this time it will be but um th- those those small display teams like the Tiger Moth display team incredible Tiger 9 just just fantastic and it's those smaller ones like that I think mm-hmm. actually are far more there's something a bit more nuanced about them isn't there when you watch yeah, like yeah, smaller definitely. aircraft getting chucked around lighter aircraft in formation um the blades team i absolutely love watching um because they oh, yeah. chuck those little extras around like nobody's business and it's amazing some of the stuff they do 
I mean, going back really quickly to the B17, there's a lady who owns it called Ellie Salimbo. She's a Danish lady who lives in the UK. And uh, her ex, when I say her ex-partner, her, her partner sadly died. Uh, so she mm. took on the Sally B. I mean, this is like, I think in like the 1970s or something. It's a, it's a long time ago. Um, so he died. So they, they both had this aircraft, which they... Uh, ran as a memorial to all the Eighth Air Force Airmen that, that that died, especially coming from like the UK, you know, like the big Eighth Air Force over East Anglia. Uh, lots of airmen died uh, in the B-17s and the B-24s uh, going over to Europe. It was like, it's just been like a huge memorial. Ellie's whole life is just dedicated to this plane as a memorial. She is the most amazing woman. You could, She's she's a powerhouse. Um, and, I, and I said to her, I interviewed her, and I said, what's going to happen you know, when when you're no more, you know what's going to happen yeah. to this B-17. And, and she said, um, like, she's even got things in place should anything happen to her, you know. It's, That's good to know. She was like, I just, I, I, just, I just want it to continue. But it's such an expensive thing to keep going. And they run it on an absolute shoestring. And she's just like, we might have to sell it at some point. I really hope they don't because it's so much love. Oh, the, so much love for the, Sally B. The cost involved in, in some of this aircraft restoration stuff is, is maddening. Um, I know a team up at Coventry Airport who are currently uh, working on getting an old Dakota Airworthy. And they have... Uh, stripped and pillaged uh, as much as they can from from other Dakotas that are like never ever going to make it back into the air. You know they're they're really kind of past it. Um, including uh, one here at uh, at Bry's. There's a Dakota which is the gate guardian for 47 Air Dispatch Squadron, and and the inside of that has been completely ripped out. But they actually borrowed a few bits from from the, from that one as well because that's never going to fly again. Um, to to just get this one, it's called Night Fright, and um, I, I went up to visit them at, uh, at Coventry Airport once so just to see see how it's getting on. And I, you know they were talking to me about the cost involved and. It it is incredible how much it you know costs to, to get these old aircraft ready to to, to fly again. But um, you know maybe some of the aircraft that we've been talking about in the podcast, like the you know the, the tornado and um, the TriStar. Uh, I, don't, I mean, TriStar. I don't think the TriStar is ever going to fly again. But you never know. One day in a few years, maybe someone will come along and say, actually, we're going to restore this one aircraft and, and get it back up. And you know that would be really lovely. There is actually a TriStar that's still flying now. Really, I didn't know yes. that. Yes. Uh, Northrop Grumman, they do the uh, TriStar, they take uh, the rockets up um, and do oh, the rocket so cool. launchers out of the back of the TriStar in America. I am so <laughs> angling for a freebie there, I can't even tell you. <laughs> yes, who, who do we uh, know? No, I couldn't believe it either. No, no, exactly. And there's, um, I mean, I know I know we've not covered the DC-10, but I am a huge fan of the DC-10 as oh, well. Of course, it. the variants used by the US Air Force as well at places like Mildon Hall and, and mm-hmm. Lake and Heath one of those flying still um as an eye hospital oh yeah, yeah. yes it's i've seen that it's called orbis that's right yeah yes it's- i have seen that it's amazing it, it there's a whole eye hospital in the sky in this thing I've, I've seen some photos of it it's incredible so who knows al maybe i will get my dream if anybody from groom and northrop is listening you're my <laughs> favorite people and i would like to go to your trust star please yeah so we'll yep. see we'll see um, today, we're going uh, pretty far back in time, actually. This is the, the oldest aircraft that we're going to be learning about today, and actually one for us that we didn't know too much about. So our, our chat with our guest today was a, a real learning experience for us. But again, I think you'll agree that the most resounding thing that we're starting to, to feel from, from our guests talking about the time on these aircraft is just how much affection they have for their time on them. I know. I, know. I mean, we think we know a little bit about aircraft, um, but when you've kind of lived and breathed it, 
and you you know every inch of these aircraft, even though you've not flown them for so long, but you still know loads about them because it's kind of indelibly printed on your brain. It's just absolutely incredible. So we spoke to Group Captain Chaz Kennett, who was a navigator in the back of a buccaneer. I mean, what an absolute story, an absolute dude, and uh, we both got a lot of love for him. When I was very young, uh, I was the youngest of four brothers, and um, my parents used to take us to on holiday every year. And I distinctly remember when I was four, we went to St David's Head in South Wales. We always used to see hawks flying around. We went to the air show at RAF Broadie, which is uh, in, used to be in South Wales, and we saw the red arrows display there. And I distinctly remember telling my father, I'm going to do that one day. Um, so I was very lucky. I, I, I knew what I wanted to do passionately from when I was four years old. Um, and everything I did uh, at school was aimed at joining the Royal Air Force. Um, so when I turned uh, 17, I applied to join the Royal Air Force and I was accepted. I joined as a navigator. So uh, my, my history in the Air Force is as a navigator. I'm led to believe that the Air Force was desperately short of navigators at the time because they were just bringing the tornado uh, or, or making way to bring the tornado into service at the time. So joined in 1984, and I was selected after nav training to go and fly the Buccaneer, which, if I was honest, quite frankly, made me cry. <laughs> I, I didn't want to fly the Buccaneer at the time. I was uh, desperately, desperately interested in flying the Phantom F4, uh, largely because most of my instructors were razor blade eating F4 um, instructors, and, uh, and those were the guys that I looked up to. And I don't think I'd ever met anybody that had flown the Buccaneer. So uh, I was desperately unhappy about it. But it turned out it was probably the best thing that happened to me because, I mean, it was an awesome aeroplane. It was an awesome job. It was in a great place once you get used to Lossiemouth, which is quite a long way north for a guy that came from London. Um, but I did six years flying the Buccaneer. I then converted to Tornado GR1, uh, did three years on Tornado. I did an exchange tour with the United States Marine Corps flying F-18s and then came back to Tornado GR1 uh, which then converted to the GR4 if you're a real tornado type geek. And I was a qualified weapons instructor on both the Buccaneer and the Tornado. Um, my flying came to a rather an abrupt halt, I guess, in about 2000, uh, not because I'd done anything wrong, but because I was selected to go to the Ministry of Defence. But that was interspersed with command level tours as an aviator. So I was OC operations winner at RF Marham. I was the station commander at Royal Air Force Akrotiri and, uh, and, and the rest really was time in the Ministry of Defence. So potted history and I left the Air Force in April this year, having served 37 years. Wow. Yeah, yeah that, that's, an, that's an amazing story. Um, the Buccaneer, so you, I love the fact that you said you weren't very pleased <laughs> when that was the aircraft you were selected to fly because I, I, I want to know what it is about it that you were so... Uh, initially upset about because for me when I look at it, it it's it's like someone started drawing one aircraft and then ended up finishing <laughs> with another because those intakes yeah. look like they should be on something completely different it just looks a bit bizarre doesn't it <laughs> yeah I just I just think from certain angles it, it just looks like a a pretty brutal jet I was going to use the word ugly but I, I'd never bring myself to call the Buccaneer ugly I think I think you've described it quite well it just looks like a mixture of different aeroplanes and when you compare it against something like the Phantom F4. I mean, the Phantom was just a beautiful aeroplane, uh, much better looking, in my humble opinion, than the Buccaneer. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm going to get shot for saying that. I know I will. But um, 
but different jobs uh, and different roles. So, you know, they, they were both suited to, to, to what we were doing with them at the time, I think. So for those who don't know, who are listening, tell, tell us about the role of the Buccaneer in the Air Force and specifically what, what you were doing with the aircraft at the time you were flying in it. So the Buccaneer was originally a, a Royal Naval aircraft, actually. It was, it was designed in the mid-50s, uh, and it was designed in response to a growing Russian naval capability. And there was a particular ship that was worrying the Navy at the time. It was called the Sverdlov-class Russian ship. And the Navy uh, came up with this, um, this requirement. It was designed by a company called Blackburn uh, and entered service with the Royal Navy in the late... I think it was 1962, actually, it entered service with the Royal Navy... It was successful, although it was slightly underpowered when it entered service. If ever you speak to a guy that's flown or landed on aircraft carriers, uh, the one thing you want is lots of power. And the uh, Buccaneer in its early early days did not have lots of power, that's for sure. Um, it was effectively transferred to the Royal Air Force. I think it was 1969, perhaps a little bit later, I think, where the Air Force inherited 100 Buccaneers. And they, they put them in the initially the overland attack role and based them in RAF Germany. Um, obviously, it was a, a, a nuclear-capable aircraft, so the Buccaneer obviously was well-suited to, to being based in Germany. In the early 80s, it was replaced by the uh, introduction of the Tornado GR1 into, um, into the low-level overland attack role, uh, and the Buccaneer then transferred into the maritime strike attack role, which is pretty much what it was invented to do. So the Royal Air Force operated it um, in that role, and, and that's the role that I was uh, I was in um, uh, when I joined the Buccaneer Force in 1984 uh, in that maritime strike attack role. Sorry, I joined the Buccaneer Force in 1987 before anybody out there corrects me. So at what point did you come around to the aircraft then, I guess? What was it that really then made... Because I guess if you spend any, any amount of time doing anything, you become a little bit endeared towards it naturally. But what, what was yeah. the turning point for you? So it was, uh, quite honestly, it was when I arrived at RAF Lossiemouth. Um, and I mentioned earlier on, so, you know, I, I was a London boy, um, kind of born and bred, and I, I didn't really get out of London much when I was young. But um, um, I distinctly remember my, my journey up to Lossiemouth on the train. It took 20 hours um, because <laughs> there was lots of snow and it was dark and it was cold. I remember getting picked up at Elgin Station by an MT driver um, who took me to the officer's mess. Uh, and then I was um, uh, placed in my cabin in the officer's mess. And I say cabin because the officer's mess at RF Lossiemouth was originally a Royal Naval mess. Mm -hmm. And literally, if I stretched my arms out from one side to another, I could touch the walls of my cabin. <laughs> um, and that's probably the second time my RF could hear where I sat down and wept at the thought <laughs> of being based at Lossiemouth for the next um, God knows how many years. But when I started the course, and when you look out the window and you see these aircraft taking off and landing and the way that they operate, you just can't help but fall in love with the Buccaneer. Uh, and that, it, to be honest, it was during, you know, probably the first two weeks of my uh, operational conversion unit that you get to understand the aircraft, you get to look at it as it flies. Um, and it just looks so awesome, uh, especially if you get the chance to stand somewhere where it's flying towards you head on quite low. Uh, it's quite quite an imposing looking aeroplane. Um, and I guess that's the point at which I kind of fell in love with the aircraft. And then the wings fold up and it looks a bit less imposing. <laughs> yeah, the wings fold up. It's got that funny air brake on the back, um, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and there are good reasons for all of that. But um, but but I always thought the best view of a Buccaneer was, um, you know, when you're standing on the ground that it was extremely low level coming towards you at a very high rate of knots. That's the best view you can ever get of a Buccaneer. What was the Buccaneer like 
to handle? Did she have some major quirks? Um, yes. So uh, for, for anybody that listens to this out there, especially those that are Buccaneer pilots, okay, they'll be the first to point out that I'm a Buccaneer navigator. <laughs> talking about what a Buccaneer was like to handle. Um, but I did I did get something like 1,700 hours in the Buccaneer. Um, and I'd like to think that I'd been in most situations, um, good and bad, that the Buccaneer can throw at you. So it was known as quite a challenging aircraft to fly, especially at low speed, especially in the circuit. Um, it had this um, rather strange system of um, uh, boundary layer control. So it used to blow air over the wings, uh, and that was to reduce the landing speed. But because of that, you had to have it at quite high power, which is why you've got the big air brake on the back, so you can fly slow with higher power and the big air brake. Um, but, but what it meant was yeah, uh, it, it wasn't very forgiving, um, in the circuit. So if you found yourself in a position where you had to bring the power back, um, that, that could end up in quite a dangerous situation. So, um, you know, the pilots, I think it, it, it was, it was different to anything else they'd flown. And of course there were no training aircraft, mm. uh, the Buccaneers. There were no two stick Buccaneers mm. at all. And the pilots used to learn to fly the Buccaneer surprisingly by flying the Hunter but that's only because they had hunters equipped with the same instrumentation of the Buccaneer. But the first time you, a pilot flew a Buccaneer was literally the first time they flew it. And they had a, a pilot instructor in the back. And I always thought the pilot instructors in the back were incredibly brave individuals um, to strap themselves into a jet with no stick and no control, but all they could do was shout loudly. To part answer your question, it was challenging to get used to. Then again, at high speed, at low level, was it, it was eye-wateringly impressive. It was incredibly stable. And, and one of the tricks the old and bold pilots used to do to young navigators was effectively take it as low as they dare and then take their hands off the controls uh, and show their hands to the guy in the back. <laughs> Amazing. And that sounds, that sounds quite alarming, but it was incredibly stable at low level, uh, and that was a, a very safe thing to do. No, it was a very stable aircraft. And, of course, it was incredibly long range. You could put lots and lots of fuel on it and carry quite a lot of weapons on it as well. And it could add to air refuel should, should it need to. Yes. and uh, I mean, one of the advantages of being on a Buccaneer squadron is you could actually turn a Buccaneer into a tanker. No um, way. <laughs> because, you, because you could carry so much fuel on it. Really? If you, were, if you were either the most junior crew or the crew that had recently messed up and annoyed the boss, you'd find yourself flying tanker. Which, uh, which was, to be honest, quite a boring thing to do, but quite a challenge sometimes, especially when you've got to refuel six buccaneers and make sure you've got enough fuel left to get home. But yeah, so, uh, you know, that was another advantage of the jet. It carried a lot of fuel and you could, you could turn it into an air to refueler. So uh, then, then the rest of your time in the Air Force, when, when, when you left the Buccaneer, you, you mentioned you went on to do various other, uh, other roles, including Station Commander RAF Akrotiri, which is uh, you know, a very important and busy place at the moment, um, and it has been for a very long time, incredibly strategic place, as you know. What, what was the, the most enjoyable part of your post-flying career in the Air Force? Without a doubt, and I think everybody you'd meet in the Air Force that has done the tour as a Station Commander, they, they would always say the most enjoyable bit is the Station Commander, and it's it's a very strange thing to reflect on that because when you're young in the Air Force, all you do is fly. You live, eat and breathe flying. And of course, being a station commander has very little to do with flying. It's all about leadership and people. Um, and I'd say, you know, people come first in that. And, and actually, never once when I was young did, did I ever think that 
you know, a Chaz Kennett when he's 55 would say that the most enjoyable thing he ever did was working with people. But 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 that's certainly the case for me. And of course, during my time in Akrotiri, we 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 had some great challenges, not least of which, you know, the immediate build-up almost overnight to support Operation Shader, you know, the arrival of tornadoes, um, typhoons, Hercules, you know, you name it, we had it on the base. And that was almost an overnight event. It's all about the people. It's the people that deal with it. Um, and that's why it was, you know, su- such a such an honour. And that sounds sounds a bit crass, but it's genuinely true um, that you get to the end of it and you think, well, what an honour that was. Mm. So Akrotiri, without a doubt, best tour in the Air Force. If you, I mean, you've already spoken about the Phantom and that, you know, you, you cried when you got on the Buccaneer because you, you really wanted to be on the Phantom. I can relate. I could relate to that. Is there any other aircraft you think that you would have liked to fly apart from the Phantom or that stands up, you think, do you think, to the book to the Buccaneer? Um, do you know what? I, I don't think there is an aircraft. Um, well, that's a risk in me saying that. But so personal view, I don't think there's an aircraft that, that the Air Force has had in its inventory that could match the Buccaneer in terms of its its capability. Um, and its utility. Um, you know, w- when you consider it, you know, it was maritime strike attack, it was overland, low level, it was a nuclear bomber, it ended up in the Gulf War as a medium altitude, mm-hmm. later designating aircraft. Um, so I don't, I just don't think that there's an aircraft that has that utility. The Air Force does tend to take its aircraft, you know, into service for one particular role and then modify it and change it and, and, and make, make them a success. Um, and you've only got to look at the Tornado GR1 slash GR4 to, to understand that. You know, it came to services very specifically to do low level in cloud in, at night over the you know, German planes and in, in, into Russia uh, and ended up, again, medium altitude um, in um, you know, Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and what a great aircraft it was when it went out of service. Um, the one aircraft I really wish I'd had a go in, but I probably only ever want to do it once, was a Vulcan. B- because, it, I mean, it's just such a lovely looking aircraft. It sounds awesome. Uh, and I just, I would love to have just had a flight in a Vulcan. I'm not sure that I'd want to do it more than once because there's not enough windows in my humble opinion. Um, <laughs> That's but, a good point. Uh, Never thought it, about that. <laughs> it, would have been, it would have been, I think, an experience to, to, to have a go. Yeah, Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I'm just looking at some photos of it as you've been talking about it. I mean, the Buccaneer, just, I can't get over how it how it looks. It's just it's utterly weird. It doesn't actually look like it should manoeuvre the way it does. It's very bizarre. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. But I mean, there are some great videos out there of low-level Buccaneer flying, uh, m- most of which you get court-martialed, of course, if you did nowadays. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, there, there are some really, really um, impressive videos of, of Buccaneers out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. So um, when you look back, uh, it's obviously, you know, you, you've left the Air Force now quite recently. Uh, you know, when you look back through your logbook, what are some of the, the memories that really stick out to you? Um, so we used to go to Gibraltar a lot with the Buccaneer. Um, so we used to work at the Royal Navy. Um, uh, we used to um, help them exercise price on deploying to the Gulf. Uh, so we would pretend to be hostile aircraft and, and do all, so, all sorts of things um, with the Royal Navy. They were always really good fun deployments. Um, operating out of Gibraltar was was a challenge in and of itself, uh, but it was great fun. The type of work we were doing with the Navy was great fun as well. 
I remember quite a few squadron deployments to uh, to various bases throughout the world. Um, uh, you know, some good, some not so good. I remember early on when I was quite young um, being deployed to um, uh, to Crete, um, and uh, completely coincidentally, the the uh, Soviet fleet um, launched a new type of aircraft carrier. Um, the same time that we were in Crete, and they launched it into the Mediterranean. And um, we were asked to go and have a look at this thing. So we used to go and look at these things every now and again. Um, and it was just fascinating operating, just flying around this, this um, you know, Soviet aircraft carrier. Um, and we were the first kind of westernized ever to see it, which was, uh, which was, which was quite fascinating. Um, and obviously we had to be quite careful as to what we were doing with them, but um, there was almost like a, a mutual kind of, a mutual kind of respect, even in the late 80s, between, you know, uh, the Soviet Navy, the, the, the uh, airmen that were flying aircraft off this aircraft carrier and, and you know, airmen um, that, that were visiting them, I would say. I'm not sure they were that pleased to see us there, but, but you know, we all got on um, OK at the time, I guess. But uh, I think, I think you know, looking back, I mean, the other interesting thing for us to do was because we were based in Lossiemouth and we had to maintain a night currency. Um, if you've ever been to Lossiemouth, you'll know that actually in the height of the summer, you can't do that because it simply just doesn't get dark enough for long enough. Um, so actually, once a year, we used to deploy to Cyprus. Uh, we used to go to Akrotiri uh, and go and night fly in Akrotiri for, th- for two or three weeks. They were always good fun. I mean, you know, I would say this, wouldn't I? But Akrotiri is always fun. I was very <laughs> pleased to see when I went back to command RF Akrotiri that the accommodation that I stayed in the late 80s was actually still there. <laughs> Um, it was still there and it was still standing. So, in fact, somebody wanted to knock it down when I was the station commander, and I wouldn't let them just because I was being sentimental about it. That's nice. That's really lovely. Yeah, that's cool. I when I was uh, out in Cyprus, I think my block was called Tenko because uh, it just looked like one of one of the Tenko blocks. Yeah, yeah. Um, Charles, I was going to ask you. Um, obviously, you've said that the um, the Buccaneer had the nuclear capability. Um, when you started flying on uh, the the buccaneer when you were back seat were they still training you in that nuclear capability or had that gone to other aircraft by that point if you were still training what what was that like it, you know it must be a bit of a, a you know a head wreck really to to think of the possibility of what you're doing yeah it it it, it was i mean so so yes we were still training with it um uh i certainly remember uh, three or four years worth of, of of training with with the nuclear capability, and as you can imagine, the rules and regulations and controls that sit around that were absolutely immense. Mm-hmm. And we used to we used to get examined on this once a year, and 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 this was probably the most serious exam you could you could do in your air force career. Uh, you know, if if you if you failed that exam, you could guarantee you'd be flying the Buccaneer tanker for the rest of your career. Uh, and you'd never be ne- let near another weapon. And, and the exam was um, the sort of exam that you just had to get word perfect. There was no leeway whatsoever on, you know, your responses to, to, to questions in that exam. And it was kind of a verbal, it was a, it was a show and tell type simulator type exam as well. And, and so, so what was it like? Well, so it was all part of the Cold War, wasn't it? And, and I say that, uh, probably rather glibly now, and it's it's mildly amusing. I remember my children 
uh, who, are, who are adults now, but but they, you know, when they went to school and they started learning about the Cold War, they were a bit incredulous about, um, you know, w- what it was like back then. Um, and sitting down and just chatting to them and explaining that, you know, it was actually really serious and people people were worried about what was going to happen during the Cold War if if a war broke out. So it, I look back on it and it just felt a bit surreal. Um, but But we had no doubt that, you know, if it happened, it was going to be quick. It was going to be nasty. It was probably going to be one way, and we were going to um, we were going to go off and do our best. And and that's probably the easiest way for me to summarise it. I think. Wow, that's incredible. I can't even imagine what that must be like to go through. It's just sort of messing <laughs> messing with my head a little bit. That's that's amazing. It, we, the, the the Buccaneer force was was unlike any other force that that I I had the pleasure to uh, to be part of. It was a really close knit close knit community. There were only two squadrons, you know, when I joined the force. There was obviously competition between those two squadrons, but all being based at Lossy Mouth, all being based at a base where you just couldn't go away for the weekend because, quite frankly, it was too far to go. It was a really close-knit community and, and full of, you know, really positive, nice people who, quite honestly, worked hard and played hard. It, it was an absolute pleasure. And, and, you know, when I think back on it, it, it was the people as well as the aeroplane that just made it such such a joy, I think. Yeah, so if there are any um, ex-Buccaneer mates out there that are listening, what I'd say is, um, hey, you made it for me. So, you know, thanks very much um, for your support, uh, for your friendship and for your professionalism. It was uh, it was a great time. So uh, the Gate Guardian at Lossy, the Buccaneer, was for sale. I think it was either last year or the beginning of this year, £28,000. Is that something you'd like for your garden? <laughs> um, quite honestly, uh, no. My garden is actually big enough to do that. But I used to drive past the Buccaneer and the petrol station on the way to Lossiemouth once they'd uh, taken the Buccaneer out of service. And to be honest, it always made me sad to look at it because it was, you know, it was sitting there doing nothing. I used mm. to say to my youngest son, hey, I've flown that. I could tell you how many hours I've got in that. It was just slowly rusting away, so I thought it was quite sad. I didn't know that it had come up for sale. I know when they went out of service, they were actually sold for scrap for £450 each. Oh, my life. And what made it worse was there was a scrap metal dealer in Elgin that literally came onto the station with a chainsaw and started cutting these things up. That's horrible. And I used to drive past this thing on the way to work um, occasionally, and you'd look over the fence and you'd see bits of buccaneer that had been hacked apart by a guy with a chainsaw. Um, and it, it was just so sad. Um, so no, I don't I don't think I'd like a gate garden. I, I, I'll I'll stick to my memories and I'll stick to what I can see in uh, in museums. Thanks very much. So we, we have to ask you, Chaz, Kemble it or keep it? But I think I know the answer. Uh, well, for me, it'd be keep it. Yeah, definitely. For me, I was a little bit on the fence at the beginning, but I'm I'm definitely towards the keep it. What about you, Al? Yeah, I'd keep it just because it looks ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, what an absolute legend. My favourite line of the whole interview was where Chaz said that uh, he cried because he wanted to be on Phantom. I know. <laughs> He, wa- he wasn't even joking, though, was he? Wasn't. He, he completely mean... wasn't. I mean, we we spoke. We, so we recorded that on on Zoom with him, and we could see we could see his face. He was completely telling the truth that he originally was not looking forward to operating that aircraft. But as you heard, he just ended up being so 
enamored with it, didn't he? It was incredible. Yeah, brilliant and just such a nice fella. Gave us loads of time. And I suspect as well, Al, that if we hadn't called a halt to that interview, we'd have still been talking now. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, well, he definitely had uh, more stories up his sleeve and it was it, it was a shame to, uh, to not get to hear all of them. But I think he gave us a really interesting insight into what it was like to operate what I think is actually one of the funniest looking aircraft I've ever seen in my life, really. It just looks completely odd. You're absolutely right, Alex. It just looks like loads of different aircraft stuck together. Tell you what we haven't done, Alex. We've not kembled it or kept anything for a little while. I think it's because we just love every aircraft. I know, it's a problem, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a huge problem. I think the Buccaneer, just simply because I love the others so much, would probably be the first to go to Kemble for me, but not because I don't like it. You know what I mean? No, I know. I, I agree because it, 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 the look of it, again, kind of the reason I wasn't so up for the tristar it's because i think it looks funny and you know i have it's the thing about the looks of the tristar not what it can do but it's just i think it looks weird uh, again the the buccaneer just looks ridiculous so I, i'm gonna kemble it as well i think we agree we agree this time that's good well you do need to take the name of the tristar out of your mouth because everything <laughs> you're saying about it is wrong we will leave it right there before we fall out because i don't want to fall out about the tristar again again listen if there's anything uh, yeah if there's anything that you've heard that you want to have a little chat about or make a comment about or if you love the tristar too then please give us a shout mavgeeks at bfbs.com it's about it for today but next week we've got an absolute doozy for you just a beautiful aircraft which is everybody's kind of secret favorite i'm sure that's it for us and we'll catch you next week <laughs>